Welcome to Startup Health Now. This is the podcast where we celebrate the most innovative health entrepreneurs and the moonshots they're working to achieve. I'm Nicole Clark, Startup Health Senior Writer. Today, I'm pleased to be talking with Toyin Ajayi, Chief Health Officer and co-founder of CityBlock Health. CityBlock is a New York-based healthcare company that's radically improving community health block by block. Prior to CityBlock, Toyin served as Chief Medical Officer of Commonwealth Care Alliance, a nationally renowned health plan and care delivery system for individuals who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. There, she led clinical operations, spearheaded care delivery innovations, and oversaw a care teams serving more than 20,000 beneficiaries across the state of Massachusetts. On top of that, she's a board-certified family physician and a sought-after speaker on the issues of health equity, a topic that we will most certainly be getting into today. Toyin, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Nicole. I'm really happy to be here. So I, I like to start these podcast interviews with some human-to-human questions. I think a simple question like, how are you doing, carries a little extra weight these days. So that being said, how, how are you doing personally? Wow, it's um, so kind of you to ask. Um, uh, how am I doing? Heart is heavy for sure. Um, uh, I'm based in Brooklyn, which as most people know, is, has been one of the epicenters of this horrible pandemic in, in the United States. And it has been really heartbreaking to see the personal toll on our population and our community. Um, and I also am feeling uh, hopeful that um, some of the lessons that we collectively as a society have learned through this may propel us forward in ways that are um, more equitable and more aligned with the vision for healthcare and for the future that, I'm, um, that I've been working so hard to fight for. Yeah, and, and speaking of some of those lessons, I selfishly sometimes use these interviews as ways to inquire about the creative means in which people are staying connected right now. You know, I, I think we're, as humans, we're hardwired for connection and we've had to get creative in how we remain connected and create community during this time of isolation. Um, can you share some of the, the ways that you've been able to create that sense of virtual community during this time? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time, like m- most people on Zoom or Skype or whatever the other, um, your preferred uh, video um, uh, chat um, modality is. Uh, it has actually, on the flip side for, as an introvert who has a job that, uh, that, that actually requires a lot of interaction with others, it has also allowed me to have a little bit more downtime um, than I've had, certainly more than I've had in, in many years. And, and that has also in, in some ways been uh, restorative and helps make those um, those human touch points and connections even the more meaningful. Um, and then finally, for me, uh, taking care of patients is always um, such a source of joy and energy and inspiration for me. And um, uh, ironically, in this time um, when there's just been such a tremendous need for healthcare, I've found myself spending more time with patients, and that has been really, really meaningful um, across all the modalities that we've been able to, to connect with folks. So turning to the work at CityBlock, one, one of the taglines that always sticks with me when I'm, I'm reading about the work that you guys are doing is this, this line that says health is local. Um, this idea of, of improving health block by block. Can you talk a little bit about what building healthy communities looks like under city blocks model. Yeah, I'll just, if, if you don't 
Brian, I'll give a, a couple minutes of just context on, on who we are and what we, what we do. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, and how this translates into, into as, as you described, this, this local feeling of, of improving health um, community by community and block by block. Um, so we're a provider organization. We, we are providers of primary care, behavioral health, and social care, which means we employ physicians, um, uh, advanced practice clinicians, so nurse practitioners, um, nurses, behavioral health specialists, psychiatrists, pharmacists, um, and we, uh, we focus specifically on communities that have um, complex and chronic needs, um, typically a combination of physical health needs, chronic diseases, as well as behavioral health and social needs. Um, in communities that have traditionally been quite underserved by, um, by healthcare and by social services. We partner um, with healthcare payers, um, so with um, insurance companies that serve mainly Medicaid and populations that are dually eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and we have built technology to support, reinforce, and enable our model um, by applying data, analytics, um, patient and member engagement tools, um, decision support, um, documentation um, to allow us to, uh, to meet people where they're at, um, to understand what's going on with their needs, um, and, to, uh, and to impact um, positively on those needs by delivering, um, by delivering outcomes that are better for them and for the communities that they live in. What that's meant for us as we built our model and built our, um, our teams is that we recognize that so much of what drives outcomes for individuals and communities is rooted in the circumstances in which they you know, live and socialize and work and play, um, that neighborhood, that community, your family, your network, and that understanding um, that context and being able to meet people where they truly are in, in that context is critical to being able to understand and then deliver outcomes for them. And so what that means is, is that we, um, we hire um, the, the kind of core of our care model are folks that we call community health partners. These are individuals we hire um, who don't have clinical backgrounds, typically don't have any clinical certification. Um, we hire them from the communities we serve. Um, many of them are career um, human services workers, folks who are dedicated to their communities, who have deep understanding and knowledge of the social and the, um, the economic and the cultural backgrounds of the communities that we serve who are um, uh, tenacious and, and empathetic and able to build and sustain trusted relationships with the members that we care for. Um, and they form the backbone of this, this feeling and this um, uh, modality of care that is truly, truly rooted in understanding people's needs and meeting them where they are. Um, and then we build the rest of our model around that. So our community health partners deploy from um, physical hubs that we locate in the communities that we serve. Um, they meet people at their homes and coffee shops and community centers. They um, uh, work to understand what's going on for each individual, not just the medical and the behavioral health and the pharmacy and the things that you typically think of when you think about healthcare, but also ask questions like, where did you sleep last night? And is there enough food in your home to eat? And um, do you feel lonely? Um, uh, and seek to use that information and that knowledge and that trust to help us as a care team better deliver interventions that will improve outcomes for them. And so that investment in, um, in providing care um, and closing the gap for populations and communities that have been traditionally underserved by healthcare, as well as um, hiring from the communities we serve and nurturing a diverse workforce and closing social gaps for folks as well, 
is, is at the heart of what it looks like for us to build healthy communities um, in a localized way. And as far as where City Block Health is deployed currently, um, can you give a sense uh, geographically where, where you guys have been able to deploy your model? Yeah, so we launched our model um, in New York City in Brooklyn um, and have since um, grown our population and are growing um, across other boroughs within New York City. Um, we also have a, a population of folks that we care for in central Connecticut and in central Massachusetts um, and, um, and also have a team uh, located in North Carolina. So in New York City right now, you know, I feel like a lot of other U.S. urban centers there's this idea of a kind of tale of two cities. The, the idea that affluent residents might have the option to work from home, leave the city, you know, to a second home perhaps. But with so many social services uh, and organizations that are providing those services shutting down or having to limit what they're doing during the pandemic, many of the disadvantaged residents of again, cities like New York are, are struggling without a safety net. How has City Block been able to use its model to address some of the health equity gaps in New York City that have been exacerbated by COVID-19? So, so when, when the pandemic first, um, first hit, um, we knew instinctively that the populations that we serve, the members that we serve who represent exactly the folks you talked about, people who are less likely to have a safety net, people who are less um, affluent and um, able to flee the city or um, use their means to decrease their risk for COVID. We knew that our population would be at highest risk, but we wanted to be really specific about who within our population. And so we, um, with our data and analytics team um, and, and the technology that, that, I, that I talked about earlier, built a model um, based on the best available evidence at the time from Italy and from, uh, from South Korea and China to help identify who amongst our population was likely to be at highest risk for for COVID-19 infection and also for poor outcomes if they were to get infected. Um, and that allowed us to segment our population, um, identify you know, the frail seniors who are living alone, identify folks who have underlying lung disease and other uh, metabolic disorders that might put them at higher risk for poor outcomes. Um, and we did what we know how to do best, which is we met people where they were. Um, we went out to literally find them. And so we outreached to every single one of our highest risk members first, and then we worked our way down the list. Um, we called folks, um, we messaged them, we let them know that we were here for them, we'd continue to be providing clinical services. Um, we knew that, uh, that using technology as a way to actually promote equity in access to care would be really important. We saw um, again, the more affluent members of our communities very easily, you know, go to the app store, download an app, put it on their phone and pivot quickly if they hadn't already to, to um, sort of commercially available telehealth options as their primary source of health care. We knew that for our members, many of whom didn't have enough bandwidth um, or data or didn't have smartphones, um, if we allowed only that to be the modality through which people accessed care, um, we, would, we would see just as we see in, in any other um, catastrophe, the folks with, with means able to buy 
their way out of um, a lot of the suffering and, and folks without means um, uh, continue to suffer. And so we worked to ensure that we were able to engage with our members via SMS, um, on the phone, um, that we were uh, working um, with our telehealth um, uh, tools to make sure that it was a single click um, login. It didn't require you to, to download an extra app or anything like that. Really understanding how we could meet our members' needs um, in a virtual world. Um, and then we also recognize that um, that for a lot of our members, um, the the sense of community that they had they would be losing during the time of social isolation was going to be really critical for them and that we needed to recreate that sense of community and so we started holding community fora uh, on on actually google meets um uh, inviting our our members and their caregivers to jump on the line, um, talk about what was going on for them, tell us what they needed, um, ask questions, um, ask about stories they were hearing or misinformation. Um, uh, we created, we moved all of our groups, so our anxiety group and our um, uh, mindfulness and meditation and Tai Chi and healthy eating, all virtual so that people could continue to have access to those. Um, and then we also recognized that we would have to continue regardless of what was going on to ensure that we could see people in person if they needed it. Um, and that, that actually that, that modality and that capability set that we'd already had within our model, the ability to do home visits um, with nurses and doctors and behavioral health specialists um, was gonna be critical through this time where a lot of folks were um, losing access to their existing um, uh, healthcare providers. Um, and so we scaled up our ability to go into people's homes and care for them. We made sure that we had the right supplies of PPE to ensure that our staff and our members were safe. Um, but we also scaled that up. And so we hired additional members to our team, paramedics. Um, we built a whole new triaging system and made a commitment to our members that if they had an urgent need, um, they could get seen in person in their home by a clinician from CityBlock within 90 minutes of them calling us with that need. And so within a couple of weeks of the, the, first, um, the first cases in New York be becoming much more public, uh, we actually had an ability to provide urgent care in people's homes um, as a way to make sure that they were connected. And it has been uh, really important to us um, throughout that we write and share and talk about our experiences so that other people, other providers, other organizations caring for folks in underserved communities, places where um, because of poverty, because of uh, the historical disparities in access to healthcare, um, people are more likely to suffer from COVID and to have poor outcomes from COVID. We need people to know that it is possible to continue to serve these populations and to do it well, even at times like this. And so we've been working really hard to share our experiences, to share our tools and resources with other providers across the country to make sure that they can implement the same types of interventions that we did to help keep their populations safe and healthy through all of this and help reduce some of the disparities that we're seeing in outcomes. It's, it's a remarkable the way that you guys have not only been able to, to pivot, right, during this, but you talked a lot about the ways that you've been able to scale. And that, that it's actually a great <laughs> um, kind of segue to a question I had about scalability. Um, taking a little bit of a step back and talking about social determinant initiatives um, and their scalability at large. You know, I, many hospitals are and have been trying to address health equity issues through programs that start by uh, screening, screening individual patients for social determinants of health, identifying perhaps which 
um, which ones need additional support, and then connecting them to resources or, or to organizations, ideally, you know, like CityBlock. Are, are you seeing these types of social determinant initiatives scale up beyond pilot projects? And, you know, from your perspective, what is needed to, to continue to help these initiatives scale? Yeah, um, uh, we have seen these these um, types of programs become much more mainstream. Uh, we recognize that screening is important, no doubt, but being able to um, actually deliver services and connections to ad address the gaps that have been identified is even more important. And what we're seeing is that that there is increasing recognition of this notion that investing in closing social gaps and addressing social needs for at-risk populations is an intervention that has a return on investment in healthcare dollars. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have folks who are struggling to um, uh, follow up with their providers and to take their medications as prescribed because the big challenge for them is transportation to and from the pharmacy or to and from the doctor's office, solving that transportation barrier is directly correlated to being able to address the clinical needs that will drive over time worse health outcomes, higher costs of care over time, more likelihood of disability over time. And being able to see that connection, what those a lot of the pilot programs that came out and a lot of the publications around social determinants have really helped payers in particular, as well as providers to see the connection between making those investments and, and better outcomes. Um, and so we're starting to see that um, scale through programs like ours and through organizations like ours in particular that are aligning financial incentives with a delivery model um, that create the right incentives to make those investments because we know over time that if we can address that, you know, that housing insecurity, that food insecurity, that um, uh, inability to access transportation, we can meaningfully change outcomes at the end of the day for a person. So uh, this next question I have, I wanted to give some of our listeners a little bit of context and I, um, leading up to this conversation, I found a couple of videos, one of them from a TED Med, the, the medical and healthcare edition TED Talks, where you spoke and you talked about the importance of trust in healthcare, posing the question, what if trust were the key operating measure in healthcare? And I'd, I'd love to unpack this a little bit with you. I think I think your question is especially relevant as it relates to the health disparities that we've known existed across racial lines that we're seeing made worse by the pandemic. And to go a step further, this week, when I think about the word trust and its role in creating equity, in this case, health equity, I can't help but think about the most recent string of anti-Black violence, George Floyd, Christian Cooper, they served as the latest reminders of America's racial hierarchy and how so many of our institutions stand directly in this legacy of racism, including our country's healthcare system. So what, what does it look like to build trust with and champion Black and Latino patients, the people that are being hit hardest by the pandemic? How, how by centering on trust and healthcare delivery can we build care systems that engage those that need it most right now? Oh, your question just like hit me to my core. Um, it is, it, 
I think you've done a really artful job of helping to draw an arc between um, where we see ourselves today with um, a confluence of both the recognition that our healthcare system and our social system with its institutionalized systemic um, injustices has created the situation we see today in COVID-19. And that is just one of many examples of the ways in which we have created structures that perpetuate bias and racism and that result in such horribly disparate outcomes for people of color um, whenever something bad happens. Um, and so starting with the notion for us that we have to earn the trust of the communities we serve because everything about the way that our world is structured has eroded that trust and created nothing but legitimate reasons for people to turn away from anything that resembles um, uh, structure and systems and um, processes that may be imposed upon them. And that it is our job and not the job of the patients and communities that we serve to make, to walk across that bridge, to form the bridge and walk across that bridge. Because so often what you see and what you've even heard, I hear all the time in the narratives around, you know, why people of color are more likely to die of COVID-19 than people who are not of color. Why, um, why our populations are more likely to get infected. Um, so much of the narrative around that is, is in some way explicit or implicit blaming of those individuals themselves for the situation that our society has created. And instead, what I continue to push our organization and healthcare leaders and um, frankly, all the leaders I can get to talk to, to do is to say, well, what if that is ours? Like, what is our responsibility to examine this question, examine how we as institutions and leaders and um, purveyors of healthcare um, that in itself uh, delivers racist outcomes, um, what do we have to own? And what's the, what's the walk we need to walk in order to earn back the trust such that we can partner and collaborate with individuals and with communities in, um, in different behaviors? And that is a really, really important question right now. What it's meant for us in the way that we've designed our, um, our organization and the work that we've done um, is that we focus on showing up for people. Um, and at a time of COVID, it meant for us that we told our population, our members, that we would be there for them no matter what, um, that we would continue to keep our doors open, that we would continue to come into their homes and lay hands and eyes on them, that we would continue to ask what matters to them and work with folks without patronizing language, without imposing our sense of, 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 um, of what is right or wrong to help respect individuals' agency and their choices and deliver on the needs that they express to us. And that is, that's what informed and influenced the way that we operated during this time, um, continuing to do home visits, continuing to um, uh, show up for people by a phone, by SMS, in groups, um, having lots of really hard and really humbling conversations with patients who refused to go to the hospital because they were certain that they would not get the care that they needed, even when they did need to go to the hospital, and holding space for those fears um, and working with them to, to shepherd um, whatever path was gonna happen for them next. Um, we do that over and over and over again in an attempt to rebuild trust and earn trust so that we can continue to partner with people and with communities um, through this work. But you know, to address the broader context in which you situated this, like, it also requires that we have to advocate for systemic change. And we have to use this moment in time to 
not just examine a chronic problem in the United States of racial and ethnic disparities, not just measure it and talk about the data, um, but do something to actually start like making conscious efforts from the top down to change these structures that create the outcomes that we're seeing right now. I feel like that that last question you said, you know, the, the mention of doing something, a lot of people kind of, you know, read read stories like the news that came out this week and are left with what what do I do? And that's where I feel like organizations like City Block Health, you know, especially in the areas of health equity, you guys have created a very tangible roadmap of what doing something looks like to narrow that gap. And I, uh, I, I'm very appreciative with both the, the thought leadership that you personally bring with regards to, to that question, but um, also the team at City Block and the work that you're doing. Thank you. So the, this last question that I have, I, um, you know, I think it's important to try to put time intentionally towards thinking about a hopeful future. And part of that, I feel like right now, a lot of people are looking at new norms or changes to the way that we've traditionally, traditionally done things, whether that's work or in our personal lives, and finding things that are good, um, good for us, good for the world. What are, what are some of those pandemic-induced changes that you've observed that you hope stick around? Yeah, I think, I mean, I can answer this question on so many different levels, and maybe I'll start with um, uh, my hopes for how we address and talk about and think about the issue of health disparities and specifically about health outcomes um, and determinants of health outcomes in um, the communities that we serve. Um, and so there I just would reiterate my answer to the earlier question, which is I deeply hope that the attention that we're paying um, to this issue, to examining the data, and also hopefully to doing things about it continues and, um, and sticks um, so that the next time there is a a pandemic or um, a crisis of global health, of public health, that we're not again examining the same data um, all over again and wondering why, why and how we got there. The second thing that I, that I hope sticks is I, I believe that we have proven that it is possible to meaningfully engage a um, primarily lower income, less affluent, less technologically savvy or less technologically gifted um, population um, in virtual ways. Um, uh, through telehealth, through uh, video um, visiting, through SMS, on the phone, um, and that therefore we should ensure and we should ask that any time we develop technology that is designed to enhance um, a specific segment of the population's access to healthcare and health services, ask about equity and, and demand that we are, um, that we're really looking to ask about accessibility and availability for, um, for populations that have been so underserved and left behind. Um, the other is that, um, is that I do think that something about this moment has forced a collective reckoning with, um, with how we consume, we as a population consume resources, um, uh, um, time, energy, how we convene and connect with each other, and, um, and taking some time to let some of those lessons carry us forward. 
the um, the gratitude and uh, that people are experiencing in, in their own health, um, in the health and well-being of the, the, the ones that they love, um, if they're so fortunate to be able to have that, um, is so important. And being able to just um, to, to hold forward that, that sense of, um, of real uh, quiet and mindfulness as we um, reflect on the things that we have historically taken for granted, I hope is something that carries us forward as well. Well, Toyin, I... I appreciate you making time again, and it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and learning more about the work that CityBlock is doing in the name of health equity. I especially appreciate your personal insights. They are invaluable. At Startup Health, our motto has been, together we can. By uniting a global army of the world's top health innovators, we believe we can solve the world's biggest health challenges, including challenges like the one we currently face with the coronavirus pandemic. Earlier this month, we launched a pandemic response moonshot. To learn more about our commitment to invest in startups and entrepreneurs working on COVID-19 solutions, visit startuphealth.com. I appreciate you joining me today. Tune in later this week when we hear from the father of lifestyle medicine, Dr. Dean Ornish. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay healthy, and if you can, stay home. We're all in this together.